Welcome back to the People's History of the Old Republic, episode 6.1, The Droid Dr. Freighter. Last episode, we covered the interstitial period between the end of Knights of the Old Republic in 3956 and the beginning of Knights of the Old Republic 2 in 3951. This time we dive into the game by creating the canonical Jedi Exile, unravel the many mysteries of Paragus, and blow up a planet. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in Legends. Alright, so Knights of the Old Republic 2, The Sith Lords. It's developed by Obsidian Entertainment and published by LucasArts in December 2004. Its lead designer and writer was uh, Chris Avalon. So we're going to start with the character creator. This is the, how you get into the game. So the first thing you notice um, is that the basic classes have changed and are now based around what type of Jedi the player wants to use. We will choose a female consular for two reasons. First, we know that the exile was canonically female. And second, consular is the best base class simply by adding plus four to all force powers. KOTOR 2 also introduces prestige classes to the series that depend upon light-dark alignment. A light-side player can choose a Jedi Weapon Master, Jedi Watchman, or Jedi Master, while a dark-side user can become a Sith Marauder, Sith Assassin, or Sith Lord. Don't be fooled by the Master Lord class. The real power comes from combining the Consular with the Weapon Master or Marauder class. Because of the amount of force power the Consular has, adding the Weapon Master Prestige class makes their lightsaber on t- lightsaber attacks on par with their use of the force. Next, the player chooses between one of 16 faces, which is four more face options than in KOTOR. But we've got a canonical Jedi Exile to go by, so we'll select the face that resembles her description, and of course it's not here. The closest is the ninth phase, but it has blonde hair. Yes, last episode we said she had blonde hair, and that was incorrect. The Jedi's the Jedi Exile's hair was canonically brown. Now that leaves us with two options. We could just choose the face option with blonde hair, or any face really, and go on with our lives, because getting hung up on the hair color or any cosmetic feature in a fictional character in a game is silly. Or... We could be the horrific pedants we are and find a mod that adds a face canonical with brown hair. We wouldn't be doing our jobs of needless pedantry if we didn't download the mod. So we downloaded it and now our exile has her canonical brown hair. Regardless of the hair color, the face still has a let me speak to your manager haircut. Listen, if we made fun of Revan's awful mullet, we're certainly going to laugh at Surik's Karen ass hairdo. We'll leave the specifics of skill and attribute point allotments to others since D20 numbers aren't our forte. And also, it's boring. And we'll link a great KOTOR 2 character build guide on Reddit if you're looking to do a new playthrough. It is a perilous time for the galaxy. A brutal civil war has all but destroyed the Jedi Order, leaving the ailing Republic on the verge of collapse. 
Amid the turmoil, the evil Sith have spread across the galaxy, hunting down and destroying the remaining Jedi Knights. Narrowly escaping a deadly Sith ambush, the last known Jedi clings to life aboard a battered freighter near, near the ravaged world of Paragus. As the crawl fades away, we see our dependable ship, the Evan Hawk, come into view, surrounded by asteroids and what looks to be a half-exploded planet. This is Paragus 2, a planet with a hole in its head, surrounded by a large asteroid field. As our view of the Ebon Hawk becomes clear, we see serious problems. The ship isn't so much flying as blindly hurtling through space, severely damaged. Sparks fly off the right side of the Hawk as it tries to make a dangerous trip through the asteroid field to the Paragus mining facility. Luckily, the Ebon Hawk has a crack team of pilots at the helm. There's... Uh, Ah, well, shit. The crew of the ship either lie dead or have long since abandoned ship. The Jedi exile Mitra Surik is a top pilot and genius with technology, but she's been drugged and is unconscious in the medbay. The only other body on the ship that might yet live is that of an old blind woman, eyes atrophied from disuse. According to the narrator of this tutorial mission, the old woman is most likely dead. Sadly, she could have helped us, but that whole being dead thing is throwing a wrench in the works. Looks like the looks like our only hope is a small astromech named T3M4, who's going to have to guide us through a dangerous asteroid field with no nav data, dock the ship with the mining facility, and save the last Jedi. Welcome to Knights of the Old Republic 2, Droid Simulator. Alright, location profile. Paragus 2. Our first location profile of the new series takes us to one of the better designed worlds in the history of Star Wars. Hundreds of years before the events of KOTOR 2, a mining colony was built on the surface of Paragus 2 to extract starship fuel from the crust of the planet. Then they found out why you shouldn't have drunken miners playing around with blasters near starship fuel, but instead of just killing the drunken miners, this blasted a hole in one side of the planet and created the asteroid field. Ever since, Paragus 2 has an exposed core and constantly leaks starship fuel into the asteroid field. Paragus 2 looks a lot like the remains of Jeddah in the Star Wars comic. Just an observation. When the Iban Hawk arrives in 3951, the field is mined by teams launching from the Paragus Mining Facility, a space station built into some of the asteroids. Despite being highly dangerous and very unstable, Paragus 2 provides starship fuel to much of the northeastern sectors of the Outer Rim, including and especially Telos 4. Workers on the mining facility station constantly altered the asteroid drift charts according to their movement and transmitted navigational data to all ships. Sure, the ships needed them to avoid hitting the asteroids and dying, but the bigger issue was the chain reaction of explosions that would follow. Even the slightest ignition in the asteroid field would ignite the fuel that floated freely into space, which would kill all on board the ship, kill all the miners, and the Pegasus mining facility, destroy what's left of uh, Paragus 2, and deprive Telos 4 of much-needed fuel. Apparently, you can't run a planetary terraforming project without combustible extracted fuel, even in sci-fi. The Paragus mining facility has strict rules banning grenades and blasters from the facility that are repeatedly told to the exile through exhausting exhibition and logs to their access through terminals. 
If it sounds like we're complaining about Paragus, get used to it. Paragus is honestly pretty good as far as lore is concerned, so we'll spend a lot of time with that, but it serves as a kind of second tutorial like Terrace did. And much like Terrace, it goes on a wee bit too long. Paragus 2 has no native life, and all the mining station crew will be dead soon, too. On the one hand, it's really kind of funny that you create a character, go through the crawl, and then find out that you have to spend the first 20 minutes of this game getting acquainted by controlling that astromech droid you never used as a companion in Knights of the Old Republic. Nevertheless, we must persist. The Ebon Hawk needs a lot of repairs, but the most critical at the moment appears to be the engine. But we can't access the engine room and don't have enough parts to repair it either. The hyperdrive will require more extensive repairs. While scouring the ship for repair parts, repair kits, and the like, T3 stumbles upon Mitra Surik lying comatose in the medbay. By using a nearby medkit, the little astrodroid stabilizes the Jedi Exile and gets some XP. There's no other reason to do do this because it's not like the player character dies before we ever get out of the tutorial. Although that would be really funny, honestly, if if you didn't have T3 give you a med kit, you just died. Oh, that's funny to me anyway. T3 also comes across a broken down astromech named 3CFD who can be quickly repaired, adding a new companion to the party and giving T3 a new friend. We're sure these two little droids are going to have plenty of adventures together for years to come. The first step is to proceed up the ladder to the outer hull and repair some wiring and grab some parts. The scene outside the Ebon Hawk is visually stunning with Paragus 2 in the distance and the droid duo moving around in the void of space. But the hull, but the outer hull also raises an important question. Who the fuck laid a bunch of minor frag mines all across the top of the ship? Sure, there are a lot of people who want to get back at one of the ship's many owners, but maybe use a more effective method than putting a minefield on top of the ship anyway. With enough parts, T3 and 3C have to split up. 3C will stay with the main control panel and operate the pressurized doors to allow T3 into the garage to repair the engine. The outer door can't be opened unless the inner door is closed and vice versa because it would depressurize the whole ship. You see how this minigame works. 3C operates the doors and T3 repairs the engines and returns to the main area of the ship and uses the nav computer to travel to dock with the Paragus mining facility above the planet. A cutscene begins showing the Ebon Hawk safely landing in one of the hangar bays built into an asteroid. Just then, we get our first glimpse of the restored content mod in action as a cutscene begins, showing one of the Ebon Hawk's doors being hacked and an HK assassination droid boarding with a blaster rifle drawn. Oh good, it's our old friend HK-47 from the last game. But wait, this droid has more of a gray color instead of HK-47's rust color coding. There are flames behind the droid, and come to think of it, why is this droid trying to kill us? As the screen fades to black, there's some blaster fire, and the sound of an astromech droid whirring and shutting down. Something even more evil than HK-47 exists. This is most of what the restored content mod brings along. Some cutscenes here, extra dialogue there, but 
it adds up. The screen fades to black and we're finally in control of the Jedi exile. Or at least we will be once this cutscene ends. Days after the arrival of T3, we see another cutscene showing that the Paragus mining facility has five Kulto tanks and bodies to fill all of them. Mitra Surik is in the central tank with two other tanks on both her left and right. Then, after being unconscious in one way or another for a few days, the Jedi exile heard the voice of God, or at least the voice of a woman speaking in a low tone, almost a whisper, who tells Surik to awaken. Somehow, even though the voice has only said one word, you can already tell that the voice you hear in the tank was being condescending about it. Moments later, the Jedi exile is out of the Kulto tank, lying on a floor panel surrounded by screens that show medical info and test results. Eventually, the human begins to move and finally rises from the cold floor. The other four Kulto tanks still hold bodies, but they're all dead. Nothing for the Jedi exile to do but exit the room and go to the nearest computer terminal on the Paragus mining facility to see if there are any helpful hollow recordings that can tell us what happened via brisk exposition. Also, this allows us to review the private and confidential medical files of others in the Paragus medbay. We guess the Republic doesn't have HIPAA laws yet. Character Profile Mitra Surik Now that she's out of her long slumber, it's time to formally introduce the Jedi exile Mitra Surik. Much like Revan, Surik's canonical journey was pieced together after the fact by a few minor references here and there. We first learned that the exile is female in the 2006 reference book, The New Essential Guide to Droids. Then the 2008 KOTOR tabletop RPG campaign guide confirmed a light side ending to KOTOR 2. Finally, Drew Carpishin's 2012 novel, The Old Republic Revan, filled in some of the details by giving us the Exile's true name and a few other minor details, such as her canonical hair color and age, sort of. Mitra Surik's hair was brown, not blonde, like we said last time, and she was about 10 years older than Bastila Shan. Meanwhile, we have no date of birth for Shan, so knowing that Surik is a decade older doesn't help us much, now does it? We will be referring to Carpishin's novel by its full name, The Old Republic Revan, from here on out, because having more than one thing called Revan is just overkill. Anyway, this isn't about Revan. This isn't about Revan. The reveal of Surik's gender is important because, unlike Knights of the Old Republic, gender not only decides possible romances, but also the makeup of the Exile's companions. Her light-dark alignment on Nar Shaddaa also affects which companions are available. We will discuss it more when we leave Telos 4, but suffice to say, there are 12 total companions in the game, but only 10 are available to the Exile. The Disciple and the Handmaiden switch availability depending on the Exile's gender, and Hanhar and Mira switch due to light-dark alignment. However, in in order to make things even more confusing... The Handmaiden actually accompanied Surik on the canonical adventure, even though a female Surik can't have the Handmaiden as a companion in the game. This was confirmed by, of all things, the 2008 Wizards of the Coast Knights of the Old Republic set of Star Wars miniature action figures, which contained info about the Handmaiden accompanying Surik and her 10 total companions. That digression notwithstanding, back to Mitra Surik. 
born on Dantooine in an unknown year, 10 years before Bastille Lashan, Mitra Sirk joined the Jedi Order as a very young child and immediately showed great capacity with the Force. She was trained at the Jedi Enclave on Dantooine by numerous masters, though her primary teacher is unknown. According to the KOTOR Tabletop Campaign Guide, Sirik learned from Master Vima Sunrider, who warned the Padawan to be mindful of her powers, especially her ability to sever connections with the Force. We don't know how a child learns that they have that ability, but there's got to be some kind of story there, right? Sadly, we don't get it. Young Mitra also served as an informal apprentice to a human master named Kavar, though he left to fight with Revan in the initial skirmishes of the Mandalorian Wars. When Surik was a little older, she joined Revan's fight with the Mandalorians against the wishes of the Jedi Council. Surik was personally recruited along with a few other Jedi, including Bastila Shan, by Malak. All Jedi present but Bastila joined Revan's fight. Though she always believed this was the correct decision, she left a prospective Padawan named Mikal with no traitor, and she wasn't the only one to leave students with no masters. Mikal, aka the Disciple, always had a boyhood crush on Surik ever since he saw her teach a class of younglings how to hear the Force sing in others. This would have been just before she left for the Mandalorian Wars in circa 3964, or before a break in the fighting that gave her time to return to Dantooine before 3960. At some point during the war, she attained the rank of knight. In 3962, she accompanied Revan and Malak in a fleet of interdictor cruisers that halted the Mandalorian advance at the Battle of Duro. Shortly thereafter, Surik was made a general and served as Supreme Commander Revan's second lieutenant, behind only Malak. In 3961, Surik led an attack to uproot the Mandalorians from Onderon's moon, Duxun. The Mandalorians had been entrenched there since 3996, and the battle changed Surik, as it has for so many. Revan had a plan of attack and Surik followed it, in spite of heavy losses to her troops. Republic soldiers and Jedi Knights made hundreds of coordinated feints against strategic Mandalorian entrenchments, each guarded by 35 years of booby traps, mines, assault droids, and the wild beast of Duxun. Republic losses were catastrophic, with Surik losing... 75% of her force and reports claiming that 10 Republic fighters died for every Mandalorian slain. Finally, after months of battle, Surik's forces pushed on the last remaining stronghold and our heroine led a final charge across a minefield to take it. Though they hadn't taken Mandalore the Ultimate, removing them from the Onderon system meant pushing the Mandalorians back into the Outer Rim permanently. In 3960, Revan called upon Mitra Surik and her most trusted engineer to build, build a weapon that would end the war in secrecy. Surik's engineer was a Zebrak named Baldur, and he built a magnificent weapon, a testament to his brilliance as a military engineer. We've described the Mass Shadow Generator and the Battle of Malachor V a few times, but most, promise, but most prominently in Episode 5.0, The Execution of All Things. Check it out if you need a refresher, though we will have cause to revisit both at the end of this series. 
At Malachor V, Surik was given command of half of Revan's enormous fleet. Surik's detachment was purposely composed of weakened ships to make it more enticing to the Mandalorians. Revan waited outside the system, but when the Mandalorians wandered into his trap above Malachor V, his fleet was delayed by a Mando scout party. When Revan entered the system, the trap slammed shut and it was over, even though the Mandalorians tried unsuccessfully to fight their way through Surik's half of the fleet. From her command ship, Mitra Surik saw the moment Revan had described, the moment to activate the mass shadow generator. Surik gave a wordless nod to Baudur, who flipped the switch, killing millions, creating some wounds in the force, and causing Surik to faint from the shock and pain. Okay, we lied last episode. There is one semi-large reveal in KOTOR 2 that we've discussed it on the show before. From the beginning of the game, Surik believes that her connection to the Force was severed by the Jedi Council as punishment for her crimes. In a holovid that is discovered on Telos 4, we see Surik's trial and the Council does imply that they blinded her to the Force as part of her punishment in exile. But that's a lie. When Surik returns to Dantooine to the rebuilt Jedi Enclave near the end of KOTOR 2, she will find out from the reconstituted Jedi Council that it wasn't the Council that severed her connection, but Surik herself had done so subconsciously as a defense mechanism. Mitra was the closest Jedi to the activation to survive, and experiencing all the death and pain at Malachor, 4, at Malachor 5 through the Force nearly killed her, so she blinded herself to the Force to save her own life. The shock of this revelation, amongst others, causes Surik to faint, because they had known for eight years that she had done this to herself and never said anything. If she had known, she would have searched for ways to reconnect to the Force earlier. Also, it's just really shitty to hide that from a person, but, as we will see, the remaining Jedi are really shitty. Following Malachor V and the Mass Shadow Generator, Revan and Malak took most of the remaining Republic fleet and fled to the Unknown Regions. Mitra Surik was the lone Jedi to stay behind and return to the Jedi Council for trial. In 3959, Surik stood before part of the remaining council, composed of Masters Atris Vruk Lamar and Zez Kael, Lunavash, and Kavar. Coincidentally, those are the only five active Jedi Masters in the galaxy as of 3951. Bastila is around two, but no longer really active. The council accused Surik of falling to the dark side, even though she was the only Jedi who followed Revan who didn't fall. Her righteous anger was almost enough to win the day, but in the end, she was exiled and stripped of her connection to the Force. The last thing we know that Mitra Surik did before disappearing into the Unknown Regions for eight years was to give up her lightsaber. The Council Chambers on Coruscant had a large stone monolith in the center, and Surik lodged her lightsaber with a cyan blade in the center stone, leaving it activated as she left. She couldn't use the Force to dramatically deactivate it as she left the room, but that would have been cool as hell. Afterward, Atris took Surik's lightsaber, a trophy of her former hero who had fallen so far from grace. Atris, always a conservative, traditionalist master, believed that her hero had been corrupted by the dark side and that Surik should have been executed for her crimes. If Atris had played KOTOR, she would know that the Jedi don't execute their prisoners. She should be careful about the dark side. At this point in 3959, Surik doesn't know that the Masters had an extended conversation about her trial and what they had done. 
Unbeknownst to Surik, Malik urged Revan to use the newly built HK-47 to assassinate the new exile, though Revan obviously declined. He said there was no sense in putting out a hit on a Jedi who was already dead. Then we know absolutely nothing about Surik's time in exile except that she left the known galaxy for eight years and didn't return until Atris intervened, orchestrating her return as a means to ferret out the Sith. In the Outer Rim, Surik boarded the Harbinger, a hammerhead cruiser which had special clearance from Admiral Carthonassi to ferry the exile to Telos IV, giving her diplomatic privileges. During the trip, the Harbinger responded to a distress call from the Iban Hawk, which had been under fire by a Sith warship. Both ships were adrift and had heavy laser scoring and battle damage. While the Harbinger investigated the vessels in the battle, stealth Sith assassins boarded the ship. Republic soldiers took the one living body from the Sith warship and placed it in a culto tank, not realizing that the body belonged to Darth Sion. The Sith assassins eventually revealed themselves when Sion awoke, claiming he stopped the Jedi and they killed all Republic personnel aboard the Harbinger. An enterprising HK-50 assassination droid used the commotion caused by the Sith attack to drug Mitra Sirk into a coma and hide her. The HK-50 was sent by a third party to find Jedi. Former Jedi Master Kraya, meanwhile, who had been on the Iban Hawk seeking the exile for her own reasons, was able to locate Sirk and drag her to the Hawk. As the light freighter attempted to escape, the Sith, who now controlled the Harbinger, noticed and turned their guns against the Hawk. The Sith attack nearly destroyed the Iban Hawk, but the smaller ship was able to flee the Paragus system and dock with the Paragus mining facility for repairs. Surik, still unconscious, was transported from the Iban Hawk to a Colto tank in the Paragus mining facility Medbay, where she stayed until hearing the voice of God. Back in the game, the Exile finds out all sorts of interesting info from the Medbay Terminal. That HK-50 that boarded the Ibn Hawk earlier posed as Surik's personal protocol droid to the Paragus mining crew. The crew, the crew found no signs of life. Um, found no signs of life on the elderly woman on the Ebon Hawk, so they placed her in the morgue and they sent T3 down to maintenance. That probably means that the droid we hear dying in the HK-50 cutscene was T3's new astromech friend, 3CFD. Sorry, little droid, your friendship with T3 showed promise. Alas, we won't get that buddy comedy and society is worse for it. Later, the exile and T3 will find the droid's body riddled with blaster shots at we'll find that the droid's body was placed in a quarantine locker. 3C's body presumably became space dust when Paragus 2 is destroyed in the big explosive escape. The Paragus 2 terminals function as exposition to explain why it appears everyone on the station is dead, what happened while Surik was sleeping, and general info about the mining operation. In most of the records, we see individuals talking into a hollow recorder, though we do sometimes see their immediate surroundings. Apparently, at some point since the XL arrived, many of the mining facility's droids have begun malfunctioning and killing or injuring miners. Somehow, it appears that everyone on the station is dead. Things look bleak over here, so maybe the morgue will hold happier news. 
With him, we see the old woman from the Ebon Hawk who is presumed dead while the XL searches for a blaster or credits on the other body in the morgue. The elderly woman begins to rise and adjust her hood just right. So it was low enough to cover her atrophied eyes, but not too low. The elderly woman asks the exile if she found what she was looking for amongst the dead. It's the voice Surik heard in the culto tank, a voice in the darkness from the infamous former Jedi Master, Kreia. Character profile. Kreia or Darth Trya. All right, fine. We lied. There are two moderately big reveals. The first is about Surik's connection to the Force, which we talked about earlier. And the second is that Kraya, your wise and doting teacher, is actually an evil Sith Lord. While the first reveal catches many players off guard, the second should not. It's evident from dialogue very early in the game that Kraya is Darth Trya, and if you didn't catch those hints, you should definitely notice during the cutscene showing Trya's betrayal by... Nihilus and Scion. Trya is just Kraya with black hair braids and her eyes became black from atrophied use instead of their normal white. The game isn't particularly subtle about Kraya being Treya, though her decision to reveal herself to the reconstituted Jedi Council at the Dantooine Enclave is still one of the best set pieces in all Star Wars history. Remember, there are no great secrets to unravel here. By the time we meet her in 3951, Kraya is an older human female with gray hair placed in two braids, with three small gold bands wrapped around each braid. By the end of this game, she will be the second most popular character from the Old Republic, only surpassed by Revan. She is the star around which the story of KOTOR 2 revolves, yet most of her life philosophies are horrible, objectivist nonsense. But when she's right, she says it like no one else can. Her opinions about the Force and the Jedi are incredibly interesting, and she serves as a fitting ombudsman to the once-venerated Order. Kraya may have once been the Jedi known as RNK, who is the mother of the Handmaiden. We'll talk about RNK and Kraya when we get to the secret Jedi Academy on Telos 4. Kraya is likely the Force ghost known as the Entity that appears in the Old Republic MMO, at least according to Drew Carpatian's understanding of it. Darth Trya fights with three purple-bladed lightsabers at once, using telekinesis through the Force to control each simultaneously. Finally, Kraya and Darth Trya are almost certainly the inspiration for the Sith Witch who died in the Scourge of Malachor that occurred in canon. We'll talk about that when we return to Malachor 5 at the very end. That's a lot of threads to pursue, eh? Suffice to say, Kraya is one of the most important characters we will discuss on the show. Little is known of Kraya's life before joining the Jedi Order, where she eventually became a Jedi historian and chronicler, searching the galaxy for artifacts of the Force. At some point, Kraya's eyes atrophied from disuse due to all the time she spent in meditation. After going blind, she used a variation of foresight to move through the world. She would wander the temple grounds and pose riddles that her students called Kraya's conundrums. At some point, Kraya served as Revan's first and last master as he trained under her initially before seeking out other masters and then finally returned to Kraya to learn how to leave the Jedi Order. 
He didn't take the advice and went on to get the Jedi involved in the Mandalorian Wars, become a Dark Lord, etc., etc. After Revan left to fight, Kreia fell further out of favor with the conservative Jedi Council, many of whom believed all of Kreia's students were failures because they followed Revan and fell to the dark side. At some point near the end of the Mandalorian Wars, Kreia was denounced by the Jedi Council and and they exiled her from the Order. Some believe that she had followed Revan into the Mandalorian Wars after her exile, but she instead retraced the footsteps of her most famous apprentice, which eventually led to the Treus Academy on Malachor V. She was drawn in by the echoes in the forest that emanated from Malachor V after it became a mass of jagged planetoids following the mass shadow generator's activation. There, Kreia found Sith assassins who had been training under Revan's Sith Empire, but instead of attacking, they gave Kreia Sith manuscripts that she used the Force to read. They revealed that the truth of the universe and the truths of the Force were not fit for the sane. The manuscripts further claimed that the Force was a semi-sentient god entity that removed free will from many beings in the galaxy, especially Force sensitives, by forcing its wills on the gal- by forcing its will on the galaxy. They discovered the existence of God, and they didn't like it. Kraya tried to forget what she read, but couldn't. It seemed too much like truth, and she began to fall to the dark side. She believed that four sensitives were persecuted by the Force by making them live in a chaotic universe. She learned more of Revan's teachings and his Sith Empire and decided that she would lead the remnant of the Sith from Malachor V. As the leader of the Sith Assassins at the Trias Academy, Kraya fought other warlords in the early days of the Sith Civil War. Kraya became Darth Trya, the Lord of Betrayal, because of the betrayal she felt from the Jedi of, for her exile. Trya sought to continue Revan's Sith legacy and attack the Republic and Jedi from the Shadows until they were weak enough to be fully destroyed. In 3955, Darth Trya joined with Darth's Scion and Nihilus to form the Sith Triumvirate, the former Jedi Master taught the other two as apprentices as the three warlords joined together to become the strongest group vying for power in the Sith Civil War. Trya taught Nihilus how to feed on the Force more effectively, and she tried to teach Sion many things, though he was always a fool. A very powerful, angry fool. Although Trya had a cautious approach to attacking the enemies of the Sith, the Triumvirate wasted little time in solidifying all meaningful Sith support and killing off all meaningful Sith opposition by 3954. The Triumvirate was based out of the Trias Academy, where Trium meditated and oversaw their shadow war, while Darth Sion took Sith assassins from the Academy out to kill Jedi quietly. But Trya was unwise, trusting her apprentices too much, and far worse, underestimating their power. She should have known better. She knew that alliances based on mutual hatred of the same opponent don't end well. Trya's apprentices chafed under her teachings and her approach to killing the Jedi. Trya sought to rule the galaxy for the Sith, killing the Jedi as a means to that end. For both Nihilus and Sion, the means was the end. They didn't care about galactic power, they just wanted to kill the Jedi and do it quickly, no more waiting around. 
Sometime between 3954 and 3952, Nihilus and Sion attacked Treya as she meditated in the core of the Treus Academy. Nihilus used the force to slam Treya into a stone column and hold her there while Sion uh, savagely beat her with his fists. Treya tried to resist and defend herself, but Nihilus's hold was too strong and Sion's barrage of fists too overwhelming. When Treya was finally unconscious, the two Sith Lords combined their strength to sever Treya's connection to the Force. They then cast her out because the pain of living without the Force and the pain of another betrayal and exile, this time by the Sith, was far worse than death to Treya. Because all the dead I dead eye jesus because all the jedi were dead or close enough treya took up her old name Kreia and searched the galaxy for answers on how to destroy her true enemy the force itself she eventually learned of the wound in the force at malachor 5 the same wound that nihilus carried and caused his constant hunger however Kreia also learned of another who was a walking wound in the force mitra Surik. When tragedies are great enough to create wounds in the Force, these wounds leave so-called echoes in the fabric of the Force that are even visible to discerning Force users. Those echoes blinded beings to the Force, and the echoes could travel, in theory, eternally. Kreia developed a plan. She would use Surik's wound and her innate talent for developing Force bonds with others, along with the wound at Malachor V, to create a new wound with Echoes in the Force so powerful that they traveled infinitely, never rebounding, thus permanently blinding everyone in the galaxy to the Force and giving all sentient beings free will again. So you thought this was just about saving the Republic, and here we are trying to kill God. Surik, of course, knows none of this at the beginning of Knights of the Old Republic 2. In 3951, Kreia rescued the exile as noted above, was nearly killed by the Sith while escaping in the Ibn Hawk, and placed herself into a deep healing trance to recover. She was presumed dead by all until she awoke in the Paragus Mining Facility Morgue. Back in the game, Kraya introduces herself to the exile ominously and then makes a quip about Surik's immodest dress as she's still wearing only the bodysuit from her time in the Colto tank. The one thing you should always remember is that she's playing you every step of the way. Sometimes it will benefit both Kraya and Surik, but mostly Kraya is playing the long game, cultivating her most powerful student yet. The Exile has a host of questions for Kraya, but they'll have to wait. Kraya tells the Exile to go recover the Ebonhawk and then they can escape. That sounds simple enough, but it's absolutely not simple in any way. What follows involves running back and forth between multiple rooms, revisiting rooms multiple times, controlling T3 again, going for a spacewalk, fighting the HK-50 bot that is responsible for all these deaths, having a run-in with Darth Cyan and meeting an ace pilot who just happens to be the only person left alive on the station. Between all of that, the Exile also pieces together what happened on the Harbinger and Paragus mining facility before she awoke from Hollow Records on terminals. Now, there's a reason why people don't like the Paragus map and you're hearing it now. It's repetitive and involves multiple blocked doors and elevators requiring elaborate steps and backtracking just to operate. This podcast is tedious enough without recounting all that back and forth of the progress tutorial in detail, so we're not going to do that. 
we're going to go through the exact timeline of events from the time the Harbinger began, investigating the Ebonox distress call up to the point where the exile awoke in the Colto tank earlier. We've glossed over this a couple of times this episode, but the lore in progress really is quite good, and we wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't talk about some of it. Then, we're going to walk through the steps Zurich and her companions took to get from the Med Bay to the Ebonhawk in sequential order. I'll beat around the bush a lot because we had to do so much introduction, but if we get to the end of Paragas, we can move straight into the fun on Telos 4 next time around. Okay, let's back up to the point when everything went sideways and the Harbinger went to investigate a distress call from the Ebon Hawk. Right now, Mitra Sarek is a passenger on the Harbinger, which arrives to investigate the signal and finds the Ebon Hawk adrift along with a dormant Sith warship. Both ships are battle-scarred from a recent confrontation. The Harbinger had a crew of some 300 and was a Hammerhead-class cruiser before being redirected to retrieve the Exile in the Outer Rim by Admiral Carthonassi. The Harbinger was going to Onderon to try and help smooth over problems there. The ship even received special permission from Admiral Onassi to divert, divert course and investigate the Ebon Hawk. The crew of the Harbinger tracked in the Ebon Hawk, but found only T3 and a number of dead bodies on the ship. Unbeknownst to the Harbinger crew, Kraya was also aboard the Hawk and snuck aboard after the ship was tracked in. Multiple scans showed no signs of life on the Sith warship, so the captain decided to dock with it to search everything. After checking again to be sure they weren't walking into a trap, the Harbinger docked with the warship via a ship-to-ship umbilical walkway and sent three crews over into a trap. They found only one body, that of a man who showed no vital signs, but who had cuts over every inch of his body and thousands of bone breaks fused back together jaggedly. The man's right eye was totally white, his skin gray and flayed in many places. The Harbinger medical crew didn't know if the man was alive or dead, so they placed him in a colto tank. Little did they know, that body belonged to Darth Sion, the Lord of Pain, and that means they're all about to die. In addition to unwittingly recovering the body of a Sith Lord, the Harbinger allowed dozens of Sith assassins to board the ship through the umbilical cord. These assassins used advanced technology that camouflaged them to everyone, and once aboard the Republic ship, they waited. The Harbinger held one more stowaway, a wild card in the situation. An HK-50 assassination droid sent out by Godo, the leader of the Exchange Crime Syndicate, was aboard working undercover as a protocol droid. This HK-50 was one of many throughout the galaxy who were seeking to recover Jedi. The Harbinger, it seems, has a stowaway problem. There's a load of Sith assassins, the body of a Dark Lord, an elderly Jedi, and an HK-50 assassination droid. None really aware of the others. Before everything broke down, the captain of the Harbinger requested that the HK-50 droid still posing as a protocol droid, to assist the exile in any way. Strange accidents suddenly began happening, crew went missing, and some of the crew felt like they were being watched, a product of the assassins, no doubt. A few days later, Darth Sion awoke, and he used the force to blow out the glass of the Colto tank and jump out, proclaiming he had come for the Jedi. The medical staff were shocked, but died all the same. As Sion awoke, his assassins revealed themselves to the remaining Harbinger crew, killing everyone on board, taking control of the vessel, and searching for the Jedi. 
but they didn't get to the Jedi Exile because she had been given the equivalent of a few elephant tranquilizers by the HK-50 droid during a routine medical procedure that was ongoing when Sion and his assassins unleashed bloody hell. The droid administered a lethal dosage, but Zerk's Jedi healing kicked in during unconsciousness until she was in a coma. Worse still, HK-50 rigged the Harbinger to experience myriad technical failures at once, crippling the ship while he waited for his help and transport to arrive. HK-50 stored Zerk's body in a hidden cabin compartment, but Kryo was more clever, finding the location and stealing the unconscious Jedi's body, taking her to the Ebon Hawk. The droid noticed Kryo's actions and followed her to the ship, stowing away on the Hawk. Kryo attempted to escape to safety, but the Sith had already re repaired HK-50 subterfuge and got weapon systems online to fire at the Ebon Hawk, damaging it severely and leaving Kryo unconscious. The ship flooded the system, but only made it as far as Paragus when its hyperdrive and engines failed. As we know, T3 repaired the ship enough to save the day by docking at the Paragus mining facility. Unfortunately, that HK-50 droid tried to scrap T3 and was about to kill a hell of a lot of miners. While Mitra Sarek lay unconscious in the Colto tank, HK-50 was busy. Seriously, just a standard list of the droid's deeds takes forever and is quite impressive. Posing as a protocol droid, HK-50 called his employer for a rescue and then proceeded to ensure that Surik wasn't compromised while he waited. HK-50 made a mistake, however, when he told the Overseer about Surik's history as a Jedi and her, and her exile. Surik's history and time as a Jedi then filtered through the station via whispers and rumors. Now, if this were a normal Star Wars story, the mining facility would simply alert the Republic that they found an unconscious body and the Jedi Order would come help out. But it's not like that anymore. We don't know what the Republic generally would do with a lone Jedi in 30, 3951, but we do know what everyone else will do. Ransom them to the exchange, which has a massive bounty out for any live Jedi. The mining staff asked HK-50 to help out the overworked maintenance staff with droid repairs. It didn't take long for the mining facility staff to begin bickering about what to do with the unconscious Jedi. One small group, led by a miner and all-around shithead named Korta, wanted to sell the Jedi to the exchange, take the bounty, and go buy a better life for themselves. Most of the facility wanted to either contact the Republic or avoid intervention altogether. HK-50, meanwhile, had noticed the efforts to sell the Jedi Exile out from under him and decided to eliminate all facility staff who tried to sell her to the Exchange or contact the Republic. HK-50 began recording the maintenance officer's answers to his mundane questions. Then he very subtly sabotaged the droids in maintenance so that they would create accidents and hurt miners. Once this happened a few times, all the droids were sent to maintenance because their systems shouldn't allow them to harm organics. With all the droids in maintenance, HK-50 could reprogram their subroutines for mayhem. The enterprising droid then set off a sonic charge early, injuring several miners and putting them in the med bay. HK-50 wasn't nearly dozen, done causing problems either. He sliced the computer systems and ordered that all patients in medbay be given a lethal dose of sedatives. It was enough to kill all the miners in their culto tanks, but left Surik alive but unconscious for even longer. Then HK-50 signaled the Harbinger and cut all communications in and out of the station, destroying any chance of repairing them quickly. 
The droids begin malfunctioning as planned, injuring a number of miners, while others began repairing the Ebon Hawk in the hangar. By now, the station is a powder keg. Korta thinks he has a deal with a couple of other miners and the maintenance officer to sell the Jedi to the exchange, but Korta was actually talking to HK-50, who was piecing together the recordings he made to mimic the officer's voice. Security and the facility overseer had already warned Korta off this path a couple of times, but he kept looking for ways to communicate with the exchange. Meanwhile, the mine foreman, Sin, a Sulistan like Nin Nunb from Return of the Jedi, overheard Korta's deal and was prepared to report it to security, but had doubts about getting involved with Jedi. In the Hollywood scene, frets that, quote, it is, it is better letting a Jedi go wherever a Jedi wants to go. When Jedi get mad, they start big wars, set galaxy on fire, end quote. Scene was not wrong there. Um, scene was murdered moments after this by Korta to keep him quiet. Being a space racist, Korta made a joke about Scene's large ears as he was doing the murder. It took us way longer to get to our first hate crime in KOTOR 2 than it did in the original. HK-50 began placing strategic force fields around the facility to block access to the hangar and used a fake fuel leak to seal off part of the exterior walkway of the station. The murderous droid then caused a number of internal explosions, forcing the station into emergency lockdown and cordoning off the staff in emergency sections and dorms with no direct system access. He even severed admin-level access to the hub. When the miners were all corralled, HK-50 pumped toxic gas into the emergency lockdown areas and dormitories, killing all the mining staff except for Korta's group. HK-50 hunted them down last with a blaster rifle while chanting Korta's name ominously. That catches us up on a whole lot of stuff that happened while we were sleeping. The Exile can speak with Kreia and HK-50 initially, but most of the pathways are blocked because of the droid's shenanigans. You might wonder why we talked to HK-50 after he did all that killing and actively trying to stop the Exile from waking up, but we don't find out until the very end of the map. Now that, we, now that we've walked through everything that happened, you can see why there are so many barriers set up around the station. That doesn't make it any less annoying, but at least now we have context for our annoyance. As promised, we're going to walk through getting the exile from the morgue to the Ebon Hawk in sequential order. Since we've already covered all the terminal entries, all that's left is from getting to point A to point Y. But first, there's a little matter of meeting Atten Rand. As Sarek is searching the main level of the facility, she finds the security offices and notices a human male locked in a force cage. Mitra hadn't had time to find clothes, and Atten made some rather ribald comments about her, retire, about her attire. She promptly repro replied by threatening to leave his ass in the force cage, and to be fair to Atten, he makes similar comments about a male exile. The exile's eyes are up here, Atten. Sarek and the prisoner have a fairly lengthy conversation, a lot of which we've already covered, such as the explosiveness of the Paragus asteroid field and part of Corda's plan to sell the XL to the exchange. Prior to learning that the XL was a Jedi, he was the Jedi that he had heard about. Atten did say that he heard the Jedi had died off and didn't even think the Jedi Council was still around. We get a lot of normal perspective on the Jedi and Sith in this game, and even already had some in Sian's words about the Jedi getting mad earlier. 
Then out of nowhere and with no warming, warning whatsoever, the exile has to re- respond to s- two statements by Atten that re- determine Revan's gender and alignment in KOTOR 1, but also determine whether we see Karth and Bastila later on. We confirm that Revan was a guy and he helped save the galaxy and the Jedi. Fat lot of good that's doing anyone right now, though. All right. If you've played KOTOR 2 and you've noticed this episode is getting up there in time. So right now you're wondering how we're going to cover everything from here to escape. And you'd be right to worry if we hadn't already covered all the terminals and nonsense that the exile encounters during the escape. Not to mention, we haven't even caught up with T3 in the Ebon Hawk since KOTOR. Don't worry, we're going to get you up to speed on T3 and the Ebon Hawk and do the character profiles for Atten Reed and Darth Sion next episode. For now, just know that Kraya is meditating while Surik and Atten Reed check out the main admin terminal and find out all the problems that either HK50 or greedy miners caused. At the main admin console, which sits before a large viewing window to the asteroid field, Tech whiz Atten Rand is able to bring local communications up again. This is our first introduction to Rand's personal catchphrase, Pierre Pazak, which sure is something. Even though comms were severed from the main hub, Atten has a workaround by bouncing the automatic hail signal the facility transmits to all ships in the area back on itself, which somehow allows us to talk to the rest of the facility. Thanks to that utterly nonsensical sentence, Aton and Mitra can now talk to T3 in the fuel depot outside Hangar 25. T3 has been hiding out and doing recon since they landed, and thinks he can open a route that will allow them to access the hangar and escape. Once Mitra finishes talking to T3, the player gains control of the astromech droid and begins seeking for a way to access the ship because the hangar terminal control conduit was removed probably by someone who didn't want us to find out what they were doing, such as repairing the Ebon Hawk, which looks good as new through the window. T3 fights a lot of hostile droids around the hangar, but starts out with a shock arm with unlimited charges. The shock arm is so powerful that T3 doesn't need weapons until we get close to level 10. That little astromech takes on all comers and successfully opens the admin emergency hatch, allowing Surik to access the mining tunnels from the main level. HK-50 figures out what's happening and tries to stop it after T3 opens the hatch. We see a cutscene that shows HK-50 finding and shooting T3, and the animation makes it appear that the astromech was destroyed, but he was just hurt and dumped in the fuel tunnels. Sadly, T3 also found the body of his old old friend 3CFD, who was destroyed by HK-50 when commandeering the Emin Hawk. The player now gains access to the Jedi Exile and makes their way through the mining tunnels to the fuel depot where they can talk to HK-50 and use a sonic imprint sensor to record the maintenance officer's voice to bypass the voice print he placed on the elevator to the admin level. This episode has so much sci-fi nonsense in it this is where we find out hk50 is probably up to no good even though most of the station suspected the maintenance officer was behind the droid malfunctions in the first place hk50 helpfully tells you the voice print id because he's sure it can't be opened with the officer dead but 
he's very much dead in the corner. And so we have to piece together his voice print by repeatedly asking HK50 pointless questions until we have enough to unlock the lift. By now, Mitrasuric has learned from HK50 that many miners fled to the dorms for safety when the emergency lockdown went into effect. Being a good person, Surik volunteers to go to the dorms to try and find any survivors and also a possible way away off the station. To do this, Surik has a spacewalk around the front of the mining facility and gives us a lovely cutscene where the Harbinger arrives to dock with the Paragus mining facility. Inside, the Harbinger is littered with bodies of Republic soldiers while one man sits alone in meditation, the Sith Lord Dark Scion. That's not at all terrifying. As the umbilical docking arm connects, Surik also notices that the ship connected its fuel line near the back. When the exile makes it to the dorm, she's dismayed to find all the crew dead and learn that HK-50 was behind it all. Though at least we got to see the death of Corda, which was satisfying. The trip to the dorms was fruitless, but provided the info we needed, so the XL takes the turbo lift up to find Kreia waiting. She has felt a disturbance in the force. Time to go. Kreia and Surik make their way back to Atun Ran in Admin. Kreia and Atun immediately hate one another, which will be a recurring theme here. The trio decided to make a break for the docking arm of the Harbinger and tried to find a way out of the facility when they're ambushed by HK-50, the reason for all this mess. The droid doesn't plan on letting Surik leave and has four small droid remotes with him to make the fight more fair. We're not going to pretend that this is a big duel because it just isn't. HK-50 dies in a heap of scrap just like all the other droids we destroyed on Paragus so far. All that's left is to carry out that convoluted plan, which will go off without a hitch, surely. Once inside the Harbinger, though, things are decidedly more grim than expected. The crew are all dead, and there's no blaster scoring or other signs of interior battle, implying that stealth was used for the kills. While we know all about the Sith Assassins and Darth Sion's dramatic exit from the Kolto tank, where he says he came for the Jedi, the companions do not. Now they realize they have to get the orbital drift charts from the bridge, then back to the Ebon Hawk. Luckily, they're right beside the bridge and easily get the nav charts. As they make their way through the command deck of the ship, the companions are beset by four groups of Sith assassins who attack from total concealment. The command deck hollows are also where the exile learns about her time on the Harbinger and how she came to be on the Ebon Hawk. Mitra Surik didn't remember any of this because she had been repeatedly drugged for probably weeks. This is also the Exile's first look at Admiral Carthur Nassi, who was giving orders to the Harbinger. Carth appears because we choose a light side Revan when talking to Atten. If it's not Carth, an Admiral named Seed is in charge. The companions move on to the crew quarters looking for more answers. Along the way, four more groups of stealthy Sith assassins attack and are dealt with accordingly. Surik enters her old bunk and finds some gear, including a very useful armband, cleverly called Mitra Surik's armband. In the midbay, the companions learn the horrors that befell the crew and that HK-50 ordered the sedative dose on Surik that initially knocked her out. 
This is where the cutscene shows Scion's escape from the Culto tank and all hell breaking loose on the Harbinger. We deal with more assassins and learn the full history of the Harbinger's investigation of the Uban Hawk. Now the companions are all caught up on the events that led Surik to go from boarding the Harbinger in the Outer Rim to being unconscious for many days and waking up on a mining facility built into an asteroid. Finally, it looks like the companions have a clear shot to the engine compartment when a cutscene begins and we find out that Darth Sion is still present. Kreia tells Surik and Rand to flee and that she will defeat this enemy because, quote, he cannot hit what he cannot see and power blinded him long ago, end quote. With that, Atten and Mitra escape to the engine compartment where they shut off the flow of fuel, open the line valve, and use it to cross back into the fuel depot of the mining facility. Once that's accomplished, we get a cutscene of the duel between Kreia and Darth Sion. The language is just vague enough that you can't tell they used to be Sith Master and Apprentice. Instead, Sion appears... Sion appears to be talking to his former Jedi Master, who he now seeks to kill, much like Vader against Obi-Wan. Kreia chides her former student, quote, to have fallen so far and learned nothing, that is your failing, end quote. Sion replies, taunting Kreia, that she seeks that she seeks the last of the Jedi, end quote. One broken Jedi cannot stop the darkness that is to come, end quote. At that, the two draw their weapons, Kreia with a vibro with a vibro sword, and Sion with a trademark red lightsaber of the Sith. This is the first lightsaber we see, and Darth Sion uses it to remove his former master's left arm below the elbow. A wound that causes Surik to collapse in agony when it happens. The powerful force bond has formed between Surik and Kreia, and it appears that the pain of one is felt by the other, which would be very bad if one of them were to die. Mitra Surik recovered long enough to keep pushing through the fuel line toward the fuel depot with Aton Rand. As they were about to emerge, Surik and Rand stumbled upon T3M4, who had been deactivated and dumped in the fuel tunnel by HK50 earlier when it looked like he died. T3 joins the group, and the Exile finds the hangar terminal con- control conduit, which HK50 had stashed nearby when junking T3. With the conduit, we can now open the hangar and access the Ibun Hawk, but there's the little matter of killing all the newly respawned droids between the group and the ship. Time for then, then to run and gun everything in sight, with T3 and his marvelous everlasting shock arm leading the way. At the terminal, T3 installs the conduit and opens the door. Once again, T3 saves all our asses even when we didn't deserve it. Anyway, we can pilot the ship and it's past time we got the hell away from the Sith. As the companions move to the Iban Hawk, we see chrome-clad Sith troopers flooding the hangar after us. Where did they come from? Who the hell knows? The player can either use the turret minigame to kill them all before they enter, which is very hard because the turret still sucks, so we just let all 25 Sith troopers in the ship and then we kill them there. That's a lot of bodies packed into a very small space and they all die accordingly. Atten grabs the captain's chair, but suddenly Kraya is in the ship. How did she get back to the Ebon Hawk from the hangar? Harbinger? It's unclear, but there's no time now. 
A cutscene begins and the Hawk lifts off and departs Hangar 25, but the Harbinger's weapon systems are still active. Firing on the Ebon Hawk, the Harbinger also fires into the asteroid field, which risks killing them all. At this moment, Surik has the choice to blow the asteroid field themselves or let the Sith do it with their constant firing. Since we're doing another light side run, we'll let the Sith blow it up for us. Soon, a stray shot from the Harbinger blows and the asteroid and, and the excess fuel ignites in space, destroying the asteroid field, the mining station, and the planet in a fiery burst. The Hawk then jumps to hyperspace to the only coordinates programmed into the drift charts. Telos 4, because that's where the fuel goes. And with that, we conclude this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. Next episode, we'll visit Citadel Station above Telos 4, be held under house arrest for possible planet side, and meet Atris, the absolute worst Jedi ever. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to FOTOR on SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at FOTORPOD or email us at FOTORPODCAST at gmail.com. You can send us questions and comments and we will answer them on the show. I'm at AthertonKD on Twitter. And I'm at LucasAmazing on Twitter. Thank you again and may the Force be with you.